Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter of Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 9. We're going today to do verses 18 through 27, which I entitled, Jesus Foretells the Coming of the Son of Man at Caesarea Philippi. Now we finished up in the last audio, the first 17 verses, the last two audios, the first 17 verses of Luke 9. We finished at... The feeding of the 5,000. Now, a lot of stuff happened between the feeding of the 5,000 and the retreat to Bethsaida. In fact, I think Robertson has three more retreats. He ends up in Syrophoenicia at one time. He's skirting the north of the Sea of Galilee to avoid the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas as the crowd's fervor increases as they want to proclaim him a political messiah. All of that is left out in Luke. Luke just makes it look like he just left the feeding of the 5,000 there, Bethsaida Julius, and then just went up the valley there to to Caesarea Philippi, but that did not happen. I'm going to splice in my discussion of Mark 8, verses 27 through 29 to cover this. It directly parallels Luke. It should do the job nicely, and that splice begins now. I'm in Mark chapter 8, starting with verse 27. So we'll start out with Mark 8, verse 27 through 30. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, this incident is leading up to the confession of Peter, the great confession that you are the Christ. And Jesus says, yes, Peter, you are the rock. And on this rock, the rock of your confession, I will build my church. Mark doesn't mention the part about establishing the church, the very controverted place in Matthew 16 where Protestants and Catholics argue over what that meant. Was Peter the first pope or not? So we're not going to talk about this because Mark and Luke, the other parallel passage, don't mention it. We can, If you want to hear about that, you can go to my audio on Matthew 16. So, but we'll look at the parallel passages here, pick up a few details. Matthew 16:13 says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Nothing extra there. But if we go to Luke 9:18, it says, While he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? So we see that this was a private prayer time away from the crowds as he's walking up to Caesarea Philippi. The reason he's so far north of Galilee now, he's trying to get away from all the crowds. One commentator said that he wasn't only trying to get away from the crowds, he was trying to get away from his disciples even. I don't know, that might be a little harsh. But anyway, the question of the hour, who is the Messiah? And Jesus wants everybody to know who the Messiah is. He knows in his mind that the disciples are totally foggy about it. They don't understand and the crowds don't understand. And we can see by the answers that we're going to get getting ready to read that they don't understand. Let's talk a little bit about Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, if you look at a map, Bethsaida's on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. You go up the Jordan River till you get to Lake Hula, which is a small lake up there. Now in Israel, it's, kind of a, it's not even there anymore. It's a, a kind of a low depression. They sucked it dry trying to get water to all the residents in the area. But you go on the map, you go past Lake Hula, keep going north on uh, up this up the Jordan River, and right around the headwaters of the Jordan River, you'll see the city called Caesarea Philippi. It was in the region of Atria, which was governed by Herod Philip II, Philip the Tetrarch, as he's called in the Scripture. That's Herod Antipas's half brother, and he was the good Herod. He was the only decent ruler of them all. 
and it was Herod Philip the Tetrarch who had re-established this city, who had fortified it and given it its name. Caesar was named after Caesar Tiberius, the ruling emperor at the time. Philip was named modestly after himself, Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was originally called Paneus, according to my NIV study Bible. That was in honor of the Greek god Pan, whose shrine was there. So paganism had crept into the country. Of course, this was so far north, this was a long way from Jerusalem. The region was especially pagan, according to the NIV study Bible. It's places now called Banias or Banias. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. I've been there, actually. The tour guides will take you through there. It's nothing but a remote place with a bunch of nice-looking trees and small hills. And there's a cave there. And you can look in the cave, and they still got all these idols to the Greek god Pan. So even to this day, you can see the pagan influence. But it was changed to Philip, the Caesarea Philippi by Philip the Tetrarch. Went from a pagan name to a Roman name. Now Jesus has asked his disciples on the way up there, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, when he used that phrase, Son of Man, that's a messianic title. He was the only guy that used that title. He was the only person that used that title, Son of Man. And when he did, it referred to the Messiah. The people called him Son of David. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. Now, many, many have said that Jesus used that phrase to emphasize his humanity. Son of means it shows a close and intimate connection with. That's what the Jewish idiom son of means and there's a close connection with jesus and man the son of man means that he is a son who has a close connection to humanity nothing wrong with that idea but basically jesus rather used the term of himself as a, a god he used it when he forgave sins in mark 2 10 so, so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins and he made the man walk so it was used to describe his divinity we see this because he got the phrase from Daniel seven thirteen fourteen, where Daniel says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, coming up. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, the Ancient of Days being God. And when he got up there, God gave him a dominion, glory, and a kingdom, says Daniel. That's the only relevant use of the Son of Man in the Old Testament. So whenever Jesus used the Son of Man, he was thinking about him going up to God and getting a kingdom. So it's a messianic term because the Messiah is going to rule this kingdom. And we can get even more information about the term from the fact that Daniel, who wrote Daniel 7, 13, 14, was a government official in the Babylonian Empire after the Babylonian exile, which started in 586 B.C. He was working there, and in Old Babylonian, the phrase son of man meant heir to royalty. So when Daniel used the term, the term was functionally equivalent to saying that the one like a son of man is the rightful heir and successor to the divine throne. So son of man is essentially means son of God. Now why did Jesus retreat privately on the road up to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples? Well, he was probably doing that so he could have a chance to tell the disciples of his impending death. Now this is a big theme here. He's, really, he's going to tell them, look guys, we've had a great time ministering, casting out demons, healing the sick, but I'm going to die. Now he was praying and this is what Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say, quote, His spirit burdened, sought relief and retirement, not only from the multitude, but even for a season from the twelve. He retreated into the secret place of the Most High, pouring out his soul in supplications and prayers with strong crying and tears. On rejoining his disciples as they were pursuing their quiet journey, he asked them this question. So Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that he was praying in private and then met the disciples. 
How does Jameson Foss and Brown know that? Probably from Luke 9:18, parallel passage. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. But the disciples came to be with him. And he asked them, what, who do the crowd say that I am? All right, so Jesus is praying. Disciples show up. He asked them this question. Now, why did he ask that question? Well, here's one option. Maybe he didn't know what the people thought of him. He was just asking for information. John Gill rejects that option. The other option is he was trying to get the disciples to correctly profess that Jesus was the Messiah, thus confirming and building their faith. And I think that's the answer right there. John Gill accepts that answer, and I believe that's true. He's trying to get them to say it with their mouths, to understand with their heads, that Jesus was the Messiah. This was going to be a hard concept for them to grasp because Messiahs don't get killed. Messiahs rule and reign. They don't get killed up on a cross. Now, when Jesus said, who do I am? We're going to get several answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. That shows that the people apparently believed in soul travel, transmigration, metempsychosis, the transmigration of souls because they knew that John the Baptist was dead, so if they thought Jesus was John the Baptist, that must, mean, that must have meant that John the Baptist's soul had left his body when he got beheaded down there in Macarius, and then his soul ended up in Jesus' body, and therefore Jesus was John the Baptist. Now, that was a widespread belief back then. Even the Pharisees believed in soul travel or, or soul migration, transmigration. They believed in that. But there's another option. They could have thought that John the Baptist was resurrected again. So that's the basic two options. Herod Antipas thought that. He told his servants he's been raised from the dead, and that's why supernatural powers are at work in him in Matthew 14. All right, so let's go on now to the next verse in Mark 8. After this question of who do people say that I am, verse 28 in Mark 8. They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. Well, Elijah, it could be Elijah. That's a natural fault because he was an extraordinary person prophesied by Malachi. Malachi 4, 5, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And as a matter of fact, Jesus had already told his disciples, if you're willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is the Elijah who is to become. So Jesus had already filled Malachi in John the Baptist. So the idea is floating around that the person who comes before the Messiah is Elijah. Of course, Jesus was the Messiah, and so some people were off a little bit. They were saying Elijah Jesus was the Elijah who came before the Messiah. They didn't understand that John the Baptist was the Elijah. So apparently the people are confused about who he is. Some of the people said, you're Jeremiah. This is not mentioned by Mark as a possible answer. It's mentioned in Matthew. This was a natural thought, actually, because the Jews thought that Jeremiah was the prophet prophesied of in Deuteronomy 18.15. Now, this is a very famous prophecy. You need to remember this verse, Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. The Jews thought that was referring to Jeremiah, but Moses was actually referring to Jesus. And there was a likeness between Jesus, the man of sorrows, and Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out. But they were wrong on that, too, because it was Jesus was the Messiah, not Jeremiah. Why didn't some people guess the truth that Jesus was the Messiah? It's interesting that of all these guesses as to who Jesus was, nobody said he was the Messiah. Not one. Well, John Gill says the reason is he was too poor and weak to fit the generally prevailing notion of the Messiah. He didn't look like the man on the white horse that going to come and conquer the Romans. He was a poor, he was walking around penniless teaching. They couldn't imagine him throwing off the Roman yoke. Now, after the question was asked, who answered? 
Well, look, before I say that, let's go to Matthew, Mark 8, verse 29. But you, he asked them again, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. Now, there's Peter's famous confession of the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. He answered first, that goes along with his reputation of being zealous. Peter didn't say this. This is Jameson Fawcett and Brown's idea. Peter didn't say this. Scribes and Pharisees, rulers and the people are all perplexed. And shall we, unlettered fishermen, presume to decide who you are? He didn't give a wishy-washy answer like that. He said, no, nah, you're the Messiah. Now, you know, Peter's often, it's often mentioned that Peter denied Jesus and he didn't understand things, which he didn't. In fact, shortly Jesus is going to call him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Because he wouldn't listen to the idea of Jesus being killed. Again, Peter has that same problem. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus later takes him aside and says, I'm going to be killed on, and, uh, and, and by the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm going to be treated cruelly and so forth. And Peter can't mesh that with his idea of the Messiah, a ruling, reigning, victorious military leader. Well, when Peter said, you are the Messiah, in Mark chapter 8, verse 30, Mark says this, And he, Jesus, strictly warned them, the disciples, to tell no one about him, no one about Jesus. Keep it quiet, the messianic secret. It's still too early to let the word out that he's the Messiah, because that would create a tumult, an uproar that would have brought the Romans in and the Jews to boot. Now, when Jesus spoke that you are the Messiah, Jesus probably took Peter's answer for the answer of all the twelve, as John Gill speculates, and the twelve probably agreed with Peter, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown speculate. So, we got the disciples, most probably now, all believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Now we move over to Matthew 16, parallel verse, because this is not in Mark. Jesus responded to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Flesh and blood can't see a Messiah and a poor carpenter wandering around with no money and no power and being persecuted by the powers that be. Flesh and blood can't see that, but the Father in heaven revealed it to Peter. Now here in Matthew, Jesus then says, after he says that Peter is blessed, then he says, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church. Now that's... The, very, very, very famous and controverted passage in Matthew 16. We're going to skip all that in our discussion of Mark here. If you want to hear about that, you can listen to my audio on Matthew 16 about the keys of the kingdom and, and what does Petra and Petros mean and all that kind of stuff. All right, I mentioned in Mark chapter 8, verse 30, and he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. That's where Matthew picks up the story in verse 20 in Matthew 16. And I said it's because people had false notions about the Messiah. They were going to try to set him up as a king, and he wanted to keep it quiet. But there's other reasons, too, why he might have told them to keep quiet. Jesus had a strict schedule to keep, according to my NIV study Bible. He could not be interrupted by premature reactions. He didn't want his teaching ministry to be hindered by crowds excited by miracles. Well, but the miracles also engendered those crowds that could hear his teaching. So NIV Study Bible might be a little one-sided on that. Notice also that if the people set up a kingdom, tried to set him up as a king, not only would the Jewish authorities see Jesus as a threat and probably try to kill him, but also Jesus' preparation time for the disciples would be cut short. He's trying to get them ready to set up the kingdom of God on earth. He needs time to do that. And since Jesus so explicitly Says, acknowledges that he's the Messiah. Peter says, you are the Messiah, and Jesus accepted his his testimony. 
Well, now would be the logical time for the disciples to start talking up a political kingdom, messiahship. This is Jameson Fawcett Brown pointed that out, and I think they're right. Matthew 9.30, which is a little bit before the... All right, this is different, different times. This is the so-called... These are verses which illustrate the so-called messianic secret that Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, didn't want anybody to find out. Matthew 9.30, And their eyes were opened, and Jesus warned them sturdily, Be sure that no one finds out. Matthew 12.16, He warned them not to make him known. Mark 1.44, See that you say nothing to anyone. That's the leper that was cleansed. Mark 5.43, Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and said that she should be given something to eat. That's Jairus, the synagogue ruler's daughter, who was raised from the dead. Mark 7.36, Then he ordered them to tell no one, but the more he would order them, the more they would proclaim it. I forgot what miracle that was. Luke 8.56, Her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. So, Jesus is trying to keep it quiet. Now, we move on to Mark 8, verse 31 and 33. Verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's the Messiah, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. Now, suffering, of course, is exactly the opposite of what people thought that the Messiah should be doing. He must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. Who were the chief priests, elders, and scribes? Well, the chief priest or the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas, high priest serving currently and also retired high priest. The elders were probably the members of the Sanhedrin who were, who were mainly Sadducees, not necessarily. And the scribes were that party of people, that professional guild, if you will, that signed deeds and notarized documents and wrote letters and took care of accounting for the temple and became learned in the law and who were mainly Pharisees and all of whom hated Jesus. Now before this, Jesus had been obscure. For example, in Matthew 12, he, he, te- he says, For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Well, what exactly does that mean? Well, it means he's going to be killed, but he didn't say it right out. But here he's openly saying, I'm going to be killed. K-I-L-L-E-D. Mark 8.32 is right here, which I just, the first I just read, it says he was openly talking about this, openly talking about being killed. So the bad news is getting hit. The disciples are getting hit with the bad news right between the eyes. Peter didn't like that bad news. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now that's pretty good, you know, rebuking the Son of God. That takes some hootspah. Now, when Jesus said that the Son of Man must suffer, this was in fulfillment of the suffering servant passage of Isaiah in Isaiah 52, 13-53, that famous piece of Scripture which is oh so famous. Now, this idea of Jesus suffering, the suffering Messiah, it's everywhere in the book of Mark. Let me scan some verses here for you. Mark 9, 12. Elijah does come first and restores everything, he replied. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he must suffer many things? and be treated with contempt. Mark 9:31. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. Jesus is still trying to get it through the disciples' head. Look, I'm going to die, folks. I'm a Messiah who dies. I'm a suffering Messiah. Mark 10, verses 33 through 34. Listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. 
Same idea. Mark 14, 21. For the Son of Man will go just as as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man than if he had not been born. Mark 14, verse 41. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The time has come. Look, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. So from now on, all the way until the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is about to die, all the way to Good Friday morning, Jesus is openly telling his disciples, Look, guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. All right, this is the first time, and Peter then tries to rebuke Jesus. That didn't work because in verse 33... Jesus turns around and looks at his disciples. And so this rebuke is, a, is an open rebuke amongst the disciples. He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Well, man's concern was, I, we don't want you to die because we love you. We don't want you to die because we want to be big in the Messianic kingdom. We want to be rulers of the Messianic kingdom if you want to impugn their motives a little bit. At any rate, it wasn't what God's plan was. Anything that's not God's plan is Satan's plan. And I mean, really, that is something for Peter to for Jesus to call Peter Satan? I've never done that. The only time I ever heard him anything called Satan was a Doberman Pinscher that was about to jump out of a front seat of a car and come after me and that I had approached him in the dark and stuck my head through the window in the dark and scared the ever-loving fire out of me and I heard the owner say, Get down, Satan! That was spooky. Name a dog Satan. Well, here Peter names his own... I mean, Jesus names his... Well, he names Peter, one of his main disciples, Satan. And I'm sure it was tempting for Jesus to hear this and say, no, I don't want to go down there and do this. I mean, Jesus was human as well as divine. He did not want to get nailed up on a cross, but he knew what God had told him to do, and he was going to do it. Now, in Peter's defense, let's remember the context here. Right before Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, he had just finished saying that, Peter, you're going to be, your confession of faith in me is going to be the rock upon which the church is built, and whatever you bind in earth, heaven is going to be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth is going to be loosed in earth, and... Peter was probably feeling pretty good about what was coming. And then all of a sudden, he hears Jesus say, well, by the way, uh, you're going to be in charge of the church here. Uh, no, I, I'm talking like a Catholic. You, you're going to be, let's put it this way, instrumental in the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. And, oh, by the way, I'm going to die and get killed. Now, he did say, I will rise again after three days. He gave some good use to, but they couldn't hear it. What does rising again mean? Nobody ever rose again from the dead. So. Now, it's an interesting question. Why did Peter take Jesus aside and begin to rebuke him? Was he trying to save Jesus' face? I don't know. Could be. I, I don't know why he took him aside. Well, maybe he just didn't have enough gumption in order to accuse Jesus of doing something wrong in front of all those other disciples. But he did it privately. Peter never could get it through his head that Jesus had to die. At the very end, when Jesus was arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane, remember, he took a sword and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus, John 18.10. And Jesus had to rebuke him again. You know, those who live by the sword, Peter, are going to die by the sword. Which, get this idea of a political messianic kingdom out of your head. Get behind me, Satan. Satan is a lone word, lone word from Hebrew. It means adversary or accuser. Jameson, Foss, and Brown make this point. Peter the Rock had very quickly turned into Peter the Devil. Now, what did Jesus mean here? Here's some options. First of all, option one, he just meant Peter was an adversary. Adam Clark accepts that expression, and so that means that Jesus is saying, get behind me, you adversary. That sort of abates the harshness of the expression, does it not? 
John, option number two from John Gill, he says that Jesus is referring to the carnality of Peter's nature because the Jews, say John Gill, would say this about a bad man. This is Satan. This is Satan. So Jesus is in effect saying this to Peter. Be gone from me. I cannot bear the sight of thee. Thou art under the influence of the corruption of thy heart and nature. Thou talkest like a carnal and not like a spiritual man. Or the third option could be Jesus is actually likening Peter to Satan himself. Now notice that Peter was tempting Jesus just like Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Satan said that Jesus, Jesus would have all the kings of the world, of the world and would, he would not have to die. Jump off the temple, the angels will catch you. You're not going to have to die, and I'm going to look at all these kingdoms. You're going to get it. But Jesus knew he had to die, and he knew that his kingdom was not of this world. And so here, Peter is tempting Jesus just like Satan did. Jesus, it ain't never going to happen to you. You're not going to die. And the implication is, and you're going to inherit your kingdom without having to die. Tempting Jesus just like Satan did. And that's why Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Now, let's point out here that Mark, in, the, in these three chapters, Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10, has written three chapters which center on three predictions of Jesus' death. In other words, the announcement of his death to his disciples is a prominent theme. I've already mentioned how he, uh, I've read through several places in Mark where Mark had said that, and that he was going to die. But right here, I'll, I'll mention these three chapters, the next three chapters where Jesus mentions it, to show you now that this is where the focus is. Mark 8, 31, that's the verse where we just are, where Jesus said he was going to suffer. Mark 9, 31, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. That's Mark 9, 31. Then we go to Mark 10, 33. Listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. That's the Romans. And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. So from now on, the geography is shifting from Galilee down to Jerusalem as Jesus goes to meet his fate. Jesus has now defined the true meaning of Messiah, not a political Messiah, but a suffering servant Messiah. Now... After having said that he was going to die, we now take up Mark 8 in verse 34 and read through verse 38. Summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he'd already turned from talking to Peter privately about not going down to Jerusalem to be killed. He then turned to the disciples and said, get behind me, Satan. You know, so Peter's rebuke was heard amongst all the disciples. Don't go around telling me that I'm not going to die. Now he summons the crowd in verse 34. So now it's Peter, the disciples, and the crowd. And he said to them, If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now remember the context here. He's just said he's going to die. So he's not talking about, you know, give up something for Lent. Give up eating too much sugar for Lent. Or give up drinking coffee. No. He's talking about literally going down there to die. Because you go down there and follow Jesus, there's a good chance they, they, they are going to kill him. If they hate the, the master, they'll hate the disciple. They could kill the disciple too. So when he says, deny yourself and take up your cross, the references to the practice that Roman executioners had, they made the criminal carry the cross to the place of execution, just like Jesus had to do until he fainted. So when Jesus is talking about taking up your cross, denying yourself, he's talking about dying for Jesus. Dying, I mean physically Losing your life's blood. When it says deny himself, that doesn't mean that you deny your personality, your characteristics, that kind of thing. 
You know, God made you that way. A lot of people take this in the wrong way and it kind of turns into kind of a ascetic thing. I'm going. I'm not going to be Dan Trotter anymore. I'm going to be somebody else. No, you're going to be who God made you to be. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about in the course of your life, you're going to have to give up certain things to follow Jesus, and, and that might include your life, your dreams, your ambitions. You know, you. I, I just went to my high, 50th high school reunion last night. And I met a guy I haven't seen for years. We're, we're all 67 years old. This man, when I was in, let's see, 17, 18 years old, I was just in high school getting ready to go to college. I was going to a dead Presbyterian church. I was backslid. I believed intellectually, but I was so screwed up and so weak, and I, I was ashamed of the gospel. And where Jesus getting ready to say, you can't be ashamed of me. Well, I was. And this man... Well, this young boy at the time got radically saved for Jesus. He was telling everybody about Jesus. I remember he convicted me so bad. I said, well, why can't I be like him? Why can't I be proudly go forth and, and tell people about the Lord? Well, anyway, this guy ended up backsliding, and he ended up becoming one of America's greatest lawyers. I mean, he is elected in the top 100 by the American Trial Lawyers Association. He won the largest settlement ever won in the state monetary settlement in the state of South Carolina in the, in our, in the state's history. He even invented a research center, an engineering research center, where if you get hurt in a car wreck, you can go down there, find a part, and do scientific analysis on why the part failed and try beating that in court. I mean, he beats the car companies when it comes to Suing them. I mean, this guy is the lawyer's lawyer. He is the most successful. He even bought a law school out of his back pocket. I've never seen anybody so successful. And I'll be honest with you, I, I wish I'd have had a chance to tell him I admired him for it because I do. As an ex-lawyer, a failed ex-lawyer, I can't help but be impressed by that. But the problem is he doesn't ever talk about Jesus anymore, not that I've ever heard through mutual friends. Never heard that he talks about Jesus anymore. So that's the sort of stuff you got to deny if you want to follow Jesus. Sometimes you can't be successful in this life. you got to deny your desire for fame and for money, or for women if you're a man. I can't speak for women what they have to deny as far as that goes. But there's a lot of stuff you got to deny. And until you get to that point where you can say, I don't care anymore, I just don't care, you don't understand the kingdom of God. Now I'm going to read Mark 8, verses 35 to 36, and I'm going to supply the proper adjective before the word life so we know whether we're talking about physical life or spiritual life, and I think it'll help you understand. Verse 35, for whoever wants to save his physical life will lose it, his spiritual life. But whoever loses his physical life because of me and the gospel will save it, his spiritual life. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his spiritual life? What can a man give in exchange for his spiritual life? So what Jesus is saying, look, you want to save your physical life and not go down to Jerusalem to get killed with me? Well, you're going to lose eternal life. But if you want to lose your physical life by following me, you'll save your spiritual life. And all the apostles did that, by the way, and every one of them got killed prematurely, killed, except for John, the son of Zebedee. But the rest of them, of course, excluding Judas, uh, the rest of them died for their spiritual life. And they're in heaven right now laughing about all the trouble they went through, if they even remember it, which they probably don't. Jesus goes on in Mark 8, verse 37. What can a man give in exchange for his spiritual life? I just read that verse, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, that's the generation of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now this thing about being ashamed, it's easy to be ashamed. I mean, let's face it, when you talk about Jesus, there's this feeling that comes over you as people are going to think I'm nuts, man. This is so contrary to the way the world thinks. They're going to, they're going to ostracize me. They're going to deny me a job. They're going to come into my bakery shop and say that I'm a homophobe because I won't sell cakes to perverted homosexual weddings. I'm going to have a face a lot of trouble. When Jesus said, you're ashamed of me and my words, he's going to be ashamed of you too at a certain time, which we'll talk about in a minute. What did, what did Paul say about being ashamed? In Romans 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. So that's the key. You have to really get a hold of how powerful Jesus is, and then you're not going to be ashamed. Then you're not going to be worried about what the persecuting world is going to do to you, and it, the world will persecute you. It's inevitable. They hate the master. They hate the students, the followers. Now, when is this shame going to happen to somebody who does not deny his life and who doesn't follow Jesus? Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now the question is, is when is this glory? Going to, well, before we get to the question of when it is, let's talk about what it is. The NIV Study Bible has a good comment here. It says that Jesus' humble and degraded circumstances would one day be reversed. It would be easy to be ashamed of a man dying as a criminal naked on a cross, nailed to a cross, and everybody mocking him and spitting on him and so forth. They're going to be ashamed of Jesus in that state, but one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to destroy those people who put him on the cross. His humble circumstances are going to be reversed. Then he might be ashamed of you in your degraded circumstance because you denied Jesus. I mean, just think how awesome this is to tell people you got to die for me. And he's a nobody. I say he's a nobody. I say he has no political power. He's not got no military power. But you got to die for me. I mean, dying is not an easy thing to do, folks. Now, the question is, is when does this come? We're going to, let's peek ahead into Mark, the first verse of Mark chapter 9, the next chapter. Then he said to them, I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. That answers the question of when Jesus will come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, you read that verse on the surface and it says, oh, that's referring to the end of the world. I'm going to show you it cannot refer to the end of the world. It cannot. Remember, we've got to take the next verse in the next chapter. Then he said to them, I assure you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God coming in power. That is when people are going to see the glory of God with the holy angels. Now, when is this? Here are some options. Is it the end of the world like so many people take it? Well, that's impossible because Jesus said in Mark 9, 1, that some of you will not taste death when the kingdom of God comes in power. Well, guess what? Everybody's going to taste death at the end of the world because that's 2,000 years and counting. And obviously nobody's going to live for 2,000 years. So it can't be the end of the world. Well, some people say it's the Mount of Transfiguration. That's when Jesus will be ashamed of people if when he comes and gets glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. But the problem with that, it can't be that either because that's too close. Nobody would taste death that soon. Because Jesus said, some of you will taste death. Well, at the end of the world, all of you would taste death. And, and at the Mount of Transfiguration, six to eight days later, nobody would taste death. So all and nobody doesn't fit some of you. But how about eighty seventy, when Jesus comes in judgment on the Jerusalem ki kingdom? It has to be this, because in 40 years, some would die and some would not taste death. 
Some would die and some would not, just what Jesus said. One problem with that view is, is that it says that angels will accompany Jesus in that coming of judgment on the kingdom in AD 70. Here, Adam Clark answers that. Adam Clark, Adam Clark takes this when Jesus comes with the angels in his glory, referring, he refers that to AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, and he handles the problem of where the angels he says that they're preachers of the gospel. If you look at Matthew 24, 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet. Angels is angelos, which in Greek can be translated very easily and very often is translated as messengers. He will send out his messengers with a loud trumpet and then will gather his elect from the four winds. That's people preaching the gospel after the kingdom of Jerusalem goes down. The rabbinic uh, kingdom of the Pharisees and Sadducees who murdered Jesus, they're gone now, and so the message just goes out. So Clark said this is what Jesus is referring to. When he's coming back to destroy Jerusalem with the glory of his messengers who are going to preach the gospel. And of course that sort of fits the context here because Jesus is talking to those messengers, the most prominent of those messengers right now. This is a reference to Daniel seven thirteen through 14. Daniel says this, I continued watching in the night visions and I saw one like a son of man, that's Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven. This is coming up now, not coming down. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was escorted before him. Well, who's escorting Jesus to, to God to receive his kingdom? Uh, that's angels. We're probably doing that. So if Jesus, if, if Jesus is not referring to human message, messengers here, but is referring to spiritual angels, angelic beings, if that's what he's referring to, then he's just making a reference to Daniel because he, when he went up to receive his kingdom from God, he was accompanied by angels. That doesn't mean that there were, there were going to be visible angels when he destroyed Rome in AD 70. So that's two different ways you can explain that angels thing. But the timing logic, it makes it ironclad to me. Some of you will not taste death until he comes when you see the glory of God and his holy angels. Well, that can't be the end of the world because all of you will taste death. It can't be the Mount of Transfiguration in six days because all, none of you would taste death by then. Nobody's going to die in six days and nobody did. But some of you are going to die in 40 years at 80, 70, and some of you are not going to die. And Jesus used the word some. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm back from my splice of Mark, chapter 8, verse 27 through chapter 9, verse 1, which covers Luke 9, 18 through 27, the events at Caesarea Philippi, topped off by, or capped off by, Jesus' prediction of his coming in Jerusalem at 80, 70 to destroy his enemies, the coming of the Son of Man. I hope you enjoyed this audio. We will continue next week, starting with Luke 9, verse 28, which contains the famous story of the Transfiguration. So we'll do that next time. I hope you enjoyed this audio.